On this episode, I interview the tenacious and relentless Lynn Myers, the CEO of the Cincinnati Ensemble Theater. And she not only maintained, but she grew a successful theater in one of the toughest neighborhoods in the country. Let's listen. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. That's a blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Okay, I want to welcome Lynn Myers to Failing Forward Podcast. Welcome, Lynn. Hi, so happy to be here. I'm so happy that you're here, too. So, Lynn, tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up. Paint that that picture. Tell us that story. <laughs> okay, well, here, uh, meaning Cincinnati, uh, west of Western Hills in Bridgetown, and um, absolutely uh, remarkably I think wonderful, odd childhood uh, in that uh, my grandparents and parents lived together. Okay. So we had this multi-generational house, which I thought was just the coolest thing ever. Um, both both sides? Both grandparents? No, just my mom's side. Just your mom's uh, my side? My mom's okay. side. Uh, so it was my mom's uh, mother and dad, and, uh, and then my dad, and then my mom and my sister and me. So we had this six-pack house, and um, what was so great about it is that everybody in my family has the tradition of working many jobs at one time. It's just what we do. So my grandfather worked at uh, a linen supply company during the day and then on the weekends, Finley Market. And my grandmother during World War II went back and was actually literally Rosie the Riveter because her name was Rosella. And then later on, she ended up working in a kitchen down in a a building by the TF Museum. Uh, My mom was a spectacular uh, executive uh, secretary who grew into becoming a project manager and a broker. And she just kept alien careers onto her table. And my Dad was a uh, police officer and uh, be- ended up becoming uh, very involved in sort of drug task force uh, towards the end of his of his police career. So I grew up in this great uh, family where everybody worked, and we didn't, you know, they weren't valuing themselves just by what they did, but what the outcome of that was. And I think that shaped me a lot in that we were definitely not wealthy. (laughs) We were not wealthy. So like a hardworking middle class? Hardworking middle class and, you know, happy. Mm -hmm. I didn't come from a family who complained about their jobs. Even when my mom would get up at 3.30 to, you know, get ready to walk if it was snowing and she had to take a bus downtown and, you know, she'd be at to work at 5 o'clock in the morning and not get home till 5 o'clock at night. I mean, she was always back home with a smile on her face, ready to help us with homework. Talk about you a little bit. Let's hear about you and well, where your my, career started. My, I, think, I think I came from good stock. And, mm-hmm. um, and uh, my grandparents and great-grandparents and my mother were actually all born within about seven blocks of Ensemble Theater theater. And um, that being the melting pot for everybody who came to this country to make a better life and work hard to have a better life, uh, they were they were part of that culture. And so it's it's a joke for my mom that it took three generations for us to move out of over the Rhine for me to move back and run a theater there, <laughs> which I'm very I'm very proud of. I'm I'm very yes. proud that I'm I'm back in a neighborhood that I think is such a core a core example of what our city is and can be. So um, grew up here again because of my extraordinary uh, parenting, uh, the parents and grandparents that I had, I grew up in a very open house. So my grandfather's uh, friends were all black. 
Uh, my grandfather worked in American Linen Company with uh, American Linen Supply Company with, uh, I think there were three white members of the staff and about 50 black members of the staff. And uh, we didn't know that was an issue growing up. It never yeah, occurred different. to us that we were different. When my parents divorced, that was sort of a rocket because nobody on my street had ever been divorced. divorced. So, you know, but I was older when that happened. And that brought up a lot of stuff with the church and all that. But, you know, uh, Catholic school all the way through, 16 years, all the way through college, Catholic college, great college, Thomas More College, great place where um, I could get three degrees in four years and work my way through. Oh, my God. So three it was degrees a pretty, in four years. Three degrees in what four years. What were the years. three degrees? Uh, English education and theater. Okay. And then theater is what you really went into. That's where I went. Never thought I was going to go there. Never okay. thought did. When I by the time I got to college, I was really interested in theater, and a lot of things happened in high school that made me shift my energies towards there. But I always thought I was going to go into law. I just always planned that that you know my dad was an, a police officer, so I was going to be a defense attorney. Oh I mean, I was just I just thought that oh sometimes they get it wrong, and I'm going <laughs> to make it right. You know? I love that. So it was just I I really didn't think about theater until uh, in high school. What happened was because of writing, and because of obligatory courses. And then because of social things, my, one of my friends wanted to audition for a play. So she wanted me to go with her, you know, and, and she's like, you audition and, and I'll hang out with all the guys. We auditioned over at LaSalle High School oh and all gosh. boys high school. And I got cast and she hung out with all the guys and <laughs> <laughs> she married very well off and, <laughs> and it all worked and out. I stayed in theater. So, yeah. um, so it was, um, it's a, it was a funny journey. But what I, er, what I found out was that theater and the arts have a power that I don't think a pulpit or a courtroom has. Mm -hmm. So what I found was that my sort of desire for justice and to think that maybe because I live the world might be slightly better off, um, what I found was that path through theater where I could tackle issues, where I could tackle what I thought was wrong and bring it to a table, but instead of bringing it to a courtroom table, I brought it to a stage. And was ensemble theater always that way? Was that no, its mission? No, no. Ensemble okay. was founded with a wonderful and noble mission by two uh, extraordinary women and an extraordinary group of uh, actors and directors and local Cincinnati professionals okay. who wanted to grow their craft. They didn't want just to get hired once a year somewhere, you know, at a theater. They wanted to be working professionals, and there was no professional theater in Cincinnati that was dedicated to hiring local professionals. I, I grew up at the Playhouse. I love the Playhouse. Okay. But the Playhouse was and, and, you know, has continued to be about hiring the best professionals from around the nation. Well, Ensemble Theater was founded to hire and keep employed the best professionals and retain and draw more professional actors and directors and writers to this region. Okay. So it had that core value. And then uh, they bought a building in the 1100 block of Vine Street when no one, no one. was buying property in 1985 and over the Rhine. Um, and then when I came in uh, 10 years later, I was hired to close the theater. Uh, the board was, um, the, the theater was in significant debt just because it quickly adds up, as we all know. Sure. And uh, they didn't think that they could keep it going. But what we found from uh, deep diving and, and uh, opening bills for an entire summer was that uh, it made no sense to close it. 
Okay. The debt needed to be retired. So why not keep it open? Okay. So when they hired you mm-hmm. or recruited you for this, you were mm-hmm. living in LA mm-hmm. and you were engaged mm-hmm. at that point. I was. Okay. Yeah. So walk us through how that <laughs> happened and what made you come back? Well, I guess the good news is that, um, is that, you know, relationships sustain change. And um, I think that, that the better news is that I'm really happy with the choice. Right, right. But it was a really hard choice. And um, what made me come back was I was angry. Okay. Because um, I was hearing about Over the Rhine. And I had directed a show there in 91. And it wasn't great, but it wasn't all that bad. Uh, but I was hearing these stories about how Over the Rhine was just you know, uninhabitable, and, and nobody would cross Central Parkway. And I'm like, that that just is impossible. As a kid, I would run from Finley Market down to the old Shilatos, you know, because I had grandparents working both places. Yeah. So uh, when I came back, I saw this beautiful building in this desperately depressed neighborhood, which was once a, a hive of activity and joy. Yes. And I couldn't believe it. And then what I couldn't believe further was that you would have this magnificent building, which came into being as a German bank, and that you would have this, if you have a building, I mean, the old the old adage of like, we have a barn, let's do a play. I mean, we had a theater. You know, why? The concept of ensemble theater was really good and really pure. So why could that not have a place still? And how do you just look at rebuilding it? And more importantly, to be honest, more importantly, um, I was challenged and by people who said to me when I wanted to stay and we wanted to rebuild it. And trust me, the board would love, they wanted it to be open. They just hadn't seen a way to do to that. To do it, yeah. So what we decided to do was, you know, one step at a time, one show at a time. You know, maybe you get to do the next one. Maybe you get to do the next one. But the challenge that I was hearing from my friends in L.A. was, hey, um, what are you going to do, change the neighborhood? In very condescending, sarcastic tones. They were sarcastic. They were condescending, like, yeah, what are you going to do, change the neighborhood? So I finally started saying, yes, that's exactly what we're going to do. Okay, and how did you do that? And we did it. We did it because we stayed. We did it because we made work that made people want to see it. We had this beautiful core of performers. We had this great uh, heritage of good relationships with playwrights that had been established by Ensemble and that I knew from my Playhouse days and from my directing days after I left the Playhouse. We had a group of people that wanted to work hard to be able to continue to work hard. When you have that kind of stamina, the rest falls into place. And then what you had to do was, you know, realize that they were bulletproof front doors and Mm -hmm. realize that, you know, one of our scenic artists had his hand broken because he caught somebody breaking into his car. So they just busted his hand and maybe was never going to work again, but he recovered. You you know, you work through the day-to-day challenges. A dead guy next to my car, third day on the job, and it took an hour 45 for the police to respond because it was OTR and I knew he was dead. You know, you you have these challenges that sound like something out of a, you know, a movie or a soap opera or like some something 60 Minutes would do a report on. Right. But it wasn't far away. It was outside the front door of the theater. And the only way to make that theater viable was to make a connection with what was on the outside of that door. The theater had locked itself away behind secure doors, which I understood, because who wanted to come to work at a shooting gallery? Right. 
But if you didn't open those doors, if you didn't connect with the community you were in, there could not be success on the other side. So how did you do that? Well, we started opening the doors, literally. We, we invited people from the community in to see shows for free. We uh, had, back in the early days, we had a latchkey thing where kids after school could come to the lobby and the word just kind of spread that if Love they needed that. to hang out until their caregivers showed up. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. It's okay. Sorry. Um, but if they needed a place, you know, we did that. Um, we started to really look... Our neighbor, our neighbor directly around the corner and like the back of their building is almost within feet of our building is Tender Mercies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we wrote a holiday um, fundraiser for Tender Mercies so that Tender Mercies could, I think our first fun, I think the first time we did this, we seriously had more people on stage <laughs> than in the audience because there was like a snowstorm and um, there might have been like 12 people that came to see it and 20 people on stage and I think we made about $200 but you know what it's still going 20 years later it's happening and it's happening again again this year so um, it was also about dealing with negative forces so we had a crack dealer on the corner uh, who had a very good business. Mm -hmm. um, he was on the, um, you know, the the south side of uh, of the corner of Twelfth and Vine. Okay. And then he had a partner on the north side, and um, and it was busier than like Starbucks on a Monday morning, you know. And Twelfth was two ways, so you could do it, and Vine was only one way in those days. So um, the crack dealer on the corner. With an empty lot across the street from ETC, which was just a place where people hung out. I mean, there was nothing there. Now there's condos and retail and a sure. parking garage, and it's awesome. But um, so you had two problems. You had people that could park for free, but they had across the street. And you never knew exactly what was going on in the parking lot. And you knew what was going on at 12th and Vine because there was dealing going on there all the time. So um, we spent 10% of our operating budget, which was, I mean, so that meant if we were going show to show, right. and I had maybe, conservatively speaking, um, maybe I had as much as as four or $5,000 to do a production, okay. that meant I had to spend $400 on security. Um, but we did that, and then, but they couldn't touch I mean, they could basically work on the parking lot people. But, you know, the dealer was, you know, a good businessman. He was. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a clientele, a loyal clientele. So um, so finally, one day, I just went up and talked to him and said, look. Were you nervous, by the way, when you went up and talked to him? Oh, yeah. I was terrified because I didn't know what was going to happen. But I also was terrified that if I didn't do something, something bad was going to keep happening. Right. So I went up and I said, I know you have a business. I have a business. I run this theater here. Um, I'm asking you to consider uh, a half hour before my shows and a half hour after my shows to not sell. Would you consider doing that? And I'm telling you, the look he gave me was like, wow, a Martian is talking to me. You know, it wasn't anger. It was just what in, what's wrong with her? I mean, he gave me I, I wish I could like I wish Recorded. I had a picture of that face, you know, um, and, and he didn't say anything for a long time. And, and finally, he just we just looked at each other and he said, do you have a schedule? And I said, yes, I can give you a type schedule. And I said, and I understand that I'm cutting into your business. So tell me if this is going to cost me. Tell me what it's going to cost me. I don't know what I can afford, but I understand you have a business. I need you to understand I have a business. And he said, a case of Heineken every Friday. 
a case of Heineken every Friday. Yeah. How long did you give him a case of Heineken for? Three years. No way. Yeah. Do you so, see him anymore? No. <laughs> the drive through So the drive through I used to get the case of Heineken. I think they think I went into AA. <laughs> I, I, I think they think that I was the lonely, Lynn got sad. Sober. This yeah. was this lonely woman who, like, had her case of beer every Friday night. Um, no, I'd go through there on, on a Friday and, and take it to work with me and give it to him the end of the day. And I will tell you, he was true to his word. Uh, this man was true to his word. They, uh, he and his partner across the street would, would pack up and go. Uh, if we had a 7.30 show or an 8 o'clock show, they'd leave an hour, half hour before. Half hour, we'd be cleaning up, we'd be leaving, they'd be back. But, uh, and we never, we never spoke again after that. We never that. spoke again. We okay. never spoke again. We'd nod. Um, you know, I mean, the first week that it worked, I nodded and he nodded back and it was a deal. And then one day he was just gone. And I did not go look for him. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, yeah. I think it's okay. I didn't right, go look that for you. Him. Didn't go look yeah. for him. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Couple questions. Um, what year was this that not, you went to to ensemble? Uh huh. I came back to ensemble in '95. Okay. July of '95. Okay. And when did you see? Because you guys probably had a lot of successes and a lot of failures. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of both, right? Yeah, right? When did you see the pendulum start to swing towards more successes and less failures? Or And when I say failures, that could mean challenges, mm-hmm. um, learnings. Mm-hmm. It, I don't like to say failures is a, a negative term. No, it's a very positive. That's no, what we call I mean, failing forward. One of, the, one of the biggest you know things that I had to learn to do was trust the audience. I had to learn that the audience was smarter than me. Um, and and that um, they had faith in this theater. And um, I had learned a really great lesson, and I wish I knew for sure what year, but we were probably still in the 90s then. Okay. Um, I, you know, we were doing these really great contemporary plays because when I came in, we, we changed the, the mission to become new works and new to the region. And then um, we f- made the mission stronger uh, along the time that, that a one came along, which is that we would also present new works and works new to the region, which had a social conscience. Okay. So there, here I am, I'm getting to marry everything I care about into this one place that I love and care about. I'm so, I'm the luckiest woman on the planet because I got to do what I thought was my life's work, doing something I loved is my yeah. life's work. Um, but I did a play called, um, well, I shouldn't say the name of it, but I did a play that was very um, popular in other cities. Okay. And I had seen it uh, in a run in San Diego, and it was, it was a blast, I thought. And I thought, oh, well, this is just so funny and so cute, and people will love this, and it'll be like a fun spring show, and they will walk out laughing and having a good time. So I'm just going to package this show up and bring it in, which they had been doing all over the country successfully. And people hated it. They hated it here. They hated it here. Now, it was a totally cute show. Mm-hmm. There was nothing wrong with the show, but they hated it. My audiences didn't like it. And I got comments at the end like, what What are you doing? Do you think we're stupid? You know, do you, I mean, I, we can watch TV. You know, we, we don't need that. I mean, why are you patronizing us? I mean, mm. I was so shocked and thrilled that I had done these hard-hitting shows, this one favorite play of mine called Praying for Rain I had, had done, which was a tough sell, and critics hated it, and audience weren't thrilled about it, but this amazing 
outcome came from that show. So I had done these tough things, and then here I thought I was going to get like this wide audience that would start to come. Well, I underestimated who my audience was. Okay, so uh, I'm so pragmatic. Mm-hmm. So what do you do now? Like, do you? How do you test that? How do you test you, whether you or not? just you 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 have to trust? I trust them. I trust my audience. I do what I believe is right okay. and important. But you thought that that one was right I and did. important. And but I thought it for all the wrong reasons. I didn't think it was right and important. I thought it was right because I thought it would get more people to come to the theater. Oh. And I thought that would help me build an audience. I okay. didn't realize that the best way to build my audience was to do the things that I did desperately care about, that did connect with my community, and that the audience would find us. So the litmus test is really you and your gut, right? Mm -hmm. Versus, okay. If I do what I think people would be pleased by, I am 90% of the time wrong. Interesting. If I do what I believe is an important show or something that's important to do because it has a message or even if it is light, even if it is something like Georgia McBride last year, which uh, dealt with, you know, um, drag queens and and, um, gender acceptance and all of that, which had this kind of underbelly of of this incredible conversation our nation's having right now about acceptance of, of gender identity, but it was hysterically funny and it had great music and it was just this raucous good time so every once in a while you find something that marries you know uh, something people will love with something that people need and um and that's what i try to do now okay but had i not so badly failed you would never have learned i would have never known no okay so trust your audience was the one Mm -hmm. thing but it was also around trusting your gut was a big failing forward for you right what else were some other failing forwards for you well i think that um I think again, uh, not trusting my instincts. Yeah, and, and maybe this isn't just in the ensemble theater role, right. but it could be in the casting director sure. role for um, since I film festival, sure. film commission. Sure, yeah. I mean, the film commission brings um, brings a lot of great films to town. This Cincinnati region, this, and it's not just Cincinnati, but it's Northern Kentucky. It's it's you know it's it's down to and over Louisville, Lexington, Indianapolis, up to Cleveland. I mean, we are in a region right now which is bursting with opportunity because film has found us and incentives have helped and the, the Film Commission has helped and our city has shown itself beautifully in films that have how coincidentally that films that I've worked on lately have a social conscience. If you look at Carol, and um, you look at you did um, you did the casting. For I did Carol. the casting for Carol. Yes. Um, now, when I say that the the leads, you know, I did not go sure, hire sure, Kate Blanchett. Sure. Um, but uh, right. but uh, but you know, all but about seven roles in that movie. All but about five roles in Miles Ahead. You know, those roles were all cast locally. So here we have an outgrowth of ensembles' mission, which is to hire and retain local professionals to this area okay now these films are continuing and expanding that mission to keep local professionals working not only in acting but also in all the other support that happens in film production so so what you're finding is that job creation is coming again through the arts and you have these remarkable renovations happening of arts facilities in this region and more to come so um, why wouldn't you want to live here you know why wouldn't you choose this region as a place where you can find a job that you love and love the job that you get and sometimes I think with casting I will just get really set 
on a particular actor. Okay. And I think that person should have the role. And either the director and I will disagree or um, or that actor will just simply not be available to do it. Uh, and at the last minute, at the 11th hour, you come up with an idea and you toss it out and it lands and it's always meant like the perfect fit, the very perfect fit. And I should have learned this from the very first film I worked on because Shawshank Redemption, um, you know, I was very young. I was very inexperienced. <laughs> what an amazing it film was just to like, work on. I can, can I do this? Really? I've not, I've like, I had did one, I had cast one television movie before this film came along in my so life. So how did you get that opportunity to cast for um, this? This amazing woman named Deb Aquila, who is a pr spectacular casting director in Los Angeles, uh, knew about, on uh, uh, knew about uh, Cincinnati Playhouse and Ohio's theater community and knew that I had cast for Cincinnati Playhouse, but she did her homework and she basically found that there was somebody out of Ohio that could uh, help. That could this. help. So, so you go to Mansfield, Ohio. I, I came, went back immediately. Came back uh, to to Ohio and went to Mansfield, Ohio, where I'd never been to Mansfield. Luckily, that she didn't know the geography that Cincinnati and Mansfield were pretty far apart. But yeah. um, but but what happened in that film? Was Frank Darabont had this magnificent vision for Tim Robbins and um, and uh, for Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman to play the leads. And Frank Darabont was a fairly unknown director at the time, who um, who had written he did the adaptation for Shawshank Redemption. So not only did he direct this movie, he did this adaptation of, from the novella of Stephen King's wow. and through a great story, um, he got the rights to do this novella when he take this novella and translate it into a screenplay and sold it to Castle Rock. I mean, Frank Darabont is a hero of mine because talk about the impossible. Um, and then he cast two unlikely heroes because Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins were not household names. Right. Um, but there was another role in the movie um, that was supposed to be cast and, and cast by, by him and by the principal casting director, Deb Aquila, in L.A. And at the very last minute... Um, the role that James Whitmore ended up playing, um, the actor that fell out and he couldn't do it, the, the actor they had originally cast couldn't do it. And there was this panicked meeting that I was lucky enough to be a fly on the wall in because I wasn't casting those things. I was casting the people, you know, all the, the prisoners. All I mean, I cast a lot of roles in the wow. movie, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I wasn't casting somebody to replace the lead role of right. this great job. And... Uh, at that table at Denny's at about 2 o'clock in the morning in Mansfield, Ohio, James Whitmore came up. The name James Whitmore came up. And um, thank God he did it because can you fathom that film without him? Lynn, because you've worked with like two organizations that had to have had to be scrappy like a startup mm -hmm. and have some, you know, resurgence or some renaissance mm -hmm. um what to you was maybe and this could be film commission or this could be ensemble theater but what was one thing that that just brought you to your knees and humbled you so much that you that pops up for you right now that you just learned that you'd like to share you've mentioned a bu bunch of them but i just want to ask that one more time sorry i'm thinking um The first year that I was at Ensemble, um, that my predecessor had decided that the Aronoff was new. So he decided a way to build audiences and, and build the brand for Ensemble was to move the holiday production down to the Jarson Kaplan Theater. 
Where's that? That's inside the Aronoff. Okay. So it's it's uh, it's the um, I think it's around a 400 seat theater. It's a great little theater, and and it's inside the Aronoff complex. Okay. So you have the big house where the touring shows come through. You have the JK, and then you have the little uh, black box, fifth third um, black box. So 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 I inherited that, <clears throat> and they were doing a British panto called Jack and the Beanstalk, and um and they we were down the Aronoff, and I got this idea that I thought was just so important. And I decided that you know, this, we had this long, long story short with the Fairy Godmother program already in place where um, in honor of a, of a Jenny Hoffman who had passed away, who was early on in the ensemble company and she passed away at a young age of ovarian cancer. Um, in her honor, they set up this donation fund. So instead of flowers or anything when she passed, people put money in and then they brought kids for free to see the holiday show. Okay. Well, I'm happy to say that from like 12 kids, it's now grown to 1,200 kids. But the very first year that I was here, we were down at the Aronoff, and I said, you know what? We're going to do a free show for kids because we're paying rent for the space, and uh, and we have the opportunity to do this. So um, we – and there were seeds of this planted before I came in, so we picked up the seeds, and I invited a school um, that was over – beyond City Hall, and the schools have changed and merged now, but um, but this was a school beyond City Hall, and we invited those kids to come, you know, 300, two, 300 kids, a whole bunch, almost a whole school came. Yeah. Yeah, I did that, and I thought that was really cool of me, and, um, and that day it was sleeting. It was sleeting, and they walked the kids from over past City Hall to the Aronoff, because somebody had invited them to go on a field trip and have a free show. So I was so uninspired and uninformed and not smart, just plain stupid, that it never occurred to me how the kids would get from that school to the Aronoff. It never occurred to me that, of course, they didn't have buses. And then when they walked in, it never occurred to me until that moment that they, of course, didn't have coats, much less scarves and gloves. I felt I I couldn't. I, it's very hard for me to express how devastated I was at my own stupidity and that those kids wanted to come bad enough and those teachers wanted them to have that experience bad enough. So when you have good people around you, you improvise and uh i mean i was i was i was so angry at myself i thought i deserved to not live that i could be that stupid um so i mean how would you know that i should have known i just should have known i mean here we're at risk kids you know at uh, going to school where they were having their best meal of the day probably with a free lunch so what uh what we did was there were um still already a couple um you know drugstores downtown um and people around me were smart smarter than me and they went and got garbage bags and cut holes in the top of the garbage bags. And we put trash bags on the kids like ponchos when they left. And the kids thought that was absolutely ah! hysterical. But their little heads were out and they were in and they were little. So they could easily fit in a garbage bag. You know, you put the head out and they, and they walked out and they were walking out. And it was just like this sight that I'm like, oh my God, this could be so perceived so wrong. But it's keeping them dry. Kept them dry. You kept know? Them, kept them warm. And then, and then. Then uh, we learned that lesson, and we went back, and I went to the board and told them about the experience, and uh, this amazing woman on our board, Mickey Kaplan, um, said, well, you know, and actually, 
coincidentally, it was the Jarson Kaplan Theater that this wow. production had happened in. But but Mickey and Stan Kaplan were astonishing citizens of Cincinnati. I mean, their their names are everywhere in this area. But Mickey. Um, uh, Mickey said, you know what, I know how to make felt scarves. I, I have this way of making scarves. So the board got together with the staff, and then because, before we had a ne- the next year, when we had the next thing, what happened was every kid got a little plastic bag with a, a, ne- a scarf in it that they had cut out of felt. And so they all walked out with these little bags. And then next year, we collected enough money that we had buses. Yes. So, you know, so it started small, but it grew, as I said, from, you know, you know, all the way up to 1,200 kids now um, that come because we have, we have sponsors and we have people supporting that. Um, but <laughs> one of the boys that got the scarf, yeah. uh, all the kids the next day on the playground were wearing their scarves right because they were outside you know and, and the teachers thought this was a cool idea and and mickey made these scarves fairly large felt scarves so they were, were really warm they weren't just like a token thing sure one of the kids didn't wear a scarf and the next day it was cold and he didn't wear a scarf and so she the teacher went to the kid and she said why aren't you wearing your scarf that you got from the theater they gave you a present and he goes no that's my mom's christmas present oh my i God. can give her that for a christmas present And you just get knocked off your feet by the need and by how lucky we are. Mm. And you just, you know, and then, you know, of course, your instinct is, how can I make scarves for every family member, for every school kid in, in Cincinnati? Well, you can't. No, but you can but do you what can, you can do. But you can every day do that. And, and you know, I, I learned. I love that story, by the way. And I love nice? that you are so resilient. Like, if you see a problem, you don't let it, you don't wallow in it. I'm sure you get pissed <laughs> and angry and sad. But then you respond. Yeah, then you, you respond. You have to respond. And that's the difference. It's like sort of, you know, respond instead and react. Instead of trying to just be, you know, uh, reactive and, and, you know, you have to sometime really stop and think, what should be my response? Diane Johnson holding a beating heart in her hand, you know, in, a, in a, an operating room and then right. coming down and somebody being worried that actors don't have enough spaghetti. Yeah. You know, you got to put it in perspective. But I try, and, and I don't have to try anymore. I actually started doing this, but because I get very, I don't get nervous at night so much as in the morning. You know, like when it's about an hour and a half or so before I'm going to get up and do something, this like nerve sets in about yeah. the panic of everything I have to do. Yes. And I have to continually try to train myself to, re- to be grateful. I have to continually say, because I am grateful at my core, mm-hmm. I just have to get back in touch with it and yeah. say, Look, there's a lot of people that don't get to wake up today, you know, that thought they did yesterday. You know, you've, I've lost friends that never thought that they would, you know, something happened, an accident, you know. Um, I lost a sister, um, you know, uh, at 57 who, you know, I can't imagine a world without her, but now I'm in a world without her. So you wake up saying, wow. I got this day. Yeah. <laughs> I might screw it up, but I got this day. But you start it with gratitude. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, so day. a lot of research is showing now that just taking seconds hmm. to create that gratitude list in your head, maybe you write it down or you say it out loud. It really, so I've started doing that too. That's great. Um, and then one other thing, I don't know why I just thought to say this, but. If I have a beef with somebody, mm-hmm. I will start a gratitude list about them or 
praying for something, praying for positive things for them to happen. So I hope that they, I pray that they have serenity. I hope that they have love in their life. I hope that they have compassion. I hope that all those things that I want for myself. You pray for them. I pray for them. That's wonderful. It really works. I bet that works beautifully. That's a great idea. So when I get resentful at somebody or Mm -hmm. ticked off at somebody, and you know that can fester. Of course. (laughs) Oh, it just can build up. Yeah, but it's basically, it's the same thing as gratitude. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, great. Oh, but that. it is, but it go, but I love what you're saying because it goes beyond it, because then it takes it off of your. It, it gives you're giving someone something, as opposed to expecting different behavior. You know, by you giving them that that spiritually, you can't physically expect any kind of materialization of it. It's just the act of giving, mm-hmm. and I think sometimes the act of giving nourishes us deeply. You know, but because what we can't change, we can wish for hope for and do the best we can to support even though we may not you know we're, we really can't fix everything no but what we can do is to try to support the change that that allows things to get better i want to thank everyone behind the scenes anna bulky our producer and the incredible team at gwyn sound If you liked this episode, please, please go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and write a review. On the next episode, our architect guest, Kurt Platt, talks about how he sees addiction as a gift and not as a failure.